Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Clocked In with me, your host, Jordan Edwards. I'm thrilled to have you tune in as we dive into the dynamic world of productivity, success, and stories of incredible individuals who've mastered the art of getting things done. Whether you're commuting, hitting the gym, or just relaxing at home, this podcast is the go-to source for inspiration and actionable tips to level up your productivity game. I'm on a mission to unravel the secrets of those who seem to effortlessly manage their time and achieve their goals. So if you're ready to clock in and unlock your full potential, you're in the right place. We've got a lineup of amazing guests, industry experts, and thought leaders who will share their insights and strategies to help us crush your to-do list and make the most out of every moment. Get ready to get inspired, motivated, and equipped with the tools you need to supercharge your productivity. This is Hashtag Clocked In with Jordan Edwards. Let's dive in. What's up? It's Clocked In with Jordan Edwards here. Hey guys, I got a special guest today. In 2011, Chris co-founded PushPay with Elliot Crawler. After realizing there was an opportunity to improve payments by developing a mobile, non-point-of-sale system that was simple, secure, and easy to use, PushPay has since went public and has a market cap of over $2 billion. That's a unicorn. Chris is currently investing in spaces people are not in, and he's the lead, he's the executive chairman of Tome and Leader. Chris Hioslip, he welcome. How are you doing, Chris? Jordan, man, it's great to be here. Excited to chat today. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. Um, your story is incredible, but where does it start? Where are you? Did you grow up in the U.S.? Or well, I have a else? pretty funny accent. Yeah, I'm, I'm for, originally from New Zealand. And um, grew up in a single parent household. And my mother, man, she worked three jobs. And so I just learned early that's what, you know, was required. I I just thought that's what everyone did. Um, So I I remember going to university. I was trying to pay my way through college. I would work at Burger King. I'd stock shelves for Coca-Cola. I'd do admissions for the university. Um, And I just, I thought that was normal because I I didn't really know. Uh, And so I think I got this kind of real competition and drive from her and uh and just seeing everything that she went through yeah absolutely and were you an only child i have a sister just me and me and her yep just the two of us wow that's incredible that your mom did that first of all uh because it provides such a, a great example as you said so for you as you're going through your career and going to college, did you ever have the dream of uh, startups, entrepreneurship? Was that ever prevalent for you? Well, in New Zealand, I didn't know what any of that was. I didn't know (laughs) BC world. I didn't know startups. So my original uh, career that she had chosen for me was she wanted me to be a CPA. So I remember one day she said, "Uh, Chris, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I said, oh, you know, firefighter. She's like, no, son, they don't make enough money. You know, you come from an only parent household. You got to go get a job that earns a decent amount of money. So from the time I was eight, I had this career goal to be an accountant of all things. I don't know many accountants, uh, eight-year-olds that want to be an accountant. So all the way through high school, I you know did classes. Uh, I remember uh, there was no accounting teacher because I went to this rural high school 
my friends were taking classes on horticulture and agriculture and how to grow <laughs> hydroponics, you know, in the rural part of, of Auckland where I'm from. And uh, I was in the library teaching myself accounting because she told me that's what I had to do. So went to college, uh, got a degree in accounting. And then I don't know if you know this, but I actually went to work for the New Zealand version of the IRS. Um, wow. <laughs> so no, I, I, love, I, was, I love it. I love it. Yeah. So I got given this book um, for Christmas called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I was reading through the book and it said, you should always focus on learning and then earning. And, you know, whether you're in a startup and business, you're just starting a career. You know, I think if you start focusing on how do I maximize for the dollars that I'm earning, you actually uh, reduce the ability to learn. So I went to work at uh, the IRS and I got its chance to meet, you know, just incredibly successful business people. And you get to see like all the insides of their, their businesses, how they run. You get exposure to like dozens and dozens of different industries, uh, you know, completely across the board. And you see like who's making money and who's not. And so this, you know, pimply 22 year old kid shows up with their badge and says, Hey, you know, tell me about your business. And, and people have to sit there and, and talk to you about how they run things. And so it was, you know, maybe not why I went there, but the learnings I got from being there was just amazing. Um, and so I don't know if that's a career path in the States, but I mean, it was just, you know, looking back one of the best ways to start a career. Yeah, absolutely incredible. I'm smiling because I was told the same thing. And my brother was told the same thing. And my brother actually, impressively enough, he ended up getting all four sections of the CPA and he just started working full time. Incredible. For me, I ended up passing. Uh, no, I didn't pass one of the exams. I failed all three. Um, but what it realized was, is I never wanted to do that. I wanted to have the accounting degree for when I went into business to understand. Exactly. So I didn't get bullied around by the account and go, no, we're good. And I'm looking at the numbers and going, we're absolutely not good. We needed to understand that. So I, I completely understand that value. Well, I think it's, it's like one of the best places to start. And one of the things my mother said, even though she didn't know a whole lot about accounting was, hey, if you, if you uh, get an accounting degree, it can help you whether you want to run your own business, whether you want to work for someone else, whether you want to be in you know, a big four accounting firm, it's going to help you and give you career options um, you know, versus maybe a super narrow career path where you just simply don't have those options. So she was you know, pretty smart for a single mother. And I think that's true. You know, Early in your career, focusing on optionality and keeping your options open to try and figure out what do you like and don't like, I think is is a great way to go. And I bet you're glad you have that, you know, accounting degree now because it just helps you so much in your career uh, as you kind of get further and further along and you got to read balance sheets and stuff and try and figure out what that means. It's a great skill to have. Uh, absolutely. And like you said before, it's really powerful for us to be very general in the beginning and learn from all different areas because we don't know which direction we're going to end up going in. And with you, with the IRS, where you had that role, what were some of the findings that you had with the different people you encountered? It was just like, well, uh, I'll get to that in a second. But one of the things was just like learning about property deals and all kinds of, you just learn just even some of the you know basics and the blocking and tacklings of business. 
you know, you come out of college, you think you know it all, and then you get into a real world job and you're like, I have no idea about anything. And so <laughs> it, it, it really took some time to just try and figure out the basics. But then when I started to meet with these really large, successful organizations and business owners, this, this is going to sound really odd, but um, when you get to see behind the curtains, like you assume from the outside that big businesses, they have some secret source, they have some kind of secret that they're not telling the world about. And then you get in there and you start looking at the books and you meet people and you realize these big businesses are just like small businesses, except they're bigger. There's, there's nothing special about them. They you know do the same thing, just a hundred times bigger. And at some point, you know, when you're trying to start a business, whether you try and build a billion-dollar business or a hundred million-dollar business or a ten million-dollar business, it's actually not that much more work to build something that's massively bigger than it is to build something that's, you know, say a ten million-dollar business. And that probably just sounds obvious, but when you get to see these businesses, you realize they all have a VP of marketing, they have a CFO, they have all of the same kinds of things. They just end up with a lot more people, a lot more customers, a lot more you know, manufacturing, if that's the line of work they're in. And so it gave me this kind of almost uh, confidence that I think I could do this. Like there's nothing really special about it. Now it's hard, but there's not any special skills that I would need to have because I had a chance to meet these people and they you know, came from nothing typically and have worked themselves into some position and it just gave me this in, internal confidence that this can be done because I'd seen people and, and heard their stories and there wasn't some kind of magic potion they took. It was just hard work and, and learning and they put together amazing businesses. I, I think it's absolutely incredible that you used a job that you weren't that happy at or might not have been the first pick and you use it as mentorship, you use it as guidance, you use it as an example, as you were able to learn from everyone. Because we have to realize that we can learn from people who are older from us, younger than us, better than us. Young, but no one's better, but you know what I mean? People who are further in their career, whatever it is, we can learn from everyone. And if we take that student first ability, then we're able to go much further. So where did that take you? This intrigue and feeling like you can take on these different endeavors. Well, let me say this. Like, I think, you know, people ask me, well, how do you start a business? You know, and I say, look, the first thing you got to do is learn. And then you got to go and figure out how to commercialize it. So people have this idea in the head of what they want to build already, but they haven't gone out and talked to customers. They haven't figured out what the pain point is. Um, and it, it, it kind of, that kind of like, I'm, I'm off, I'm, you know, I, I quit my job. I hate my boss. I'm going to go start something, but it takes this humility to actually be like, even though I have an idea and even though I kind of know what I want to build, why don't I go and ask some customers or potential customers first, what their pain point is. And, you know, one of the rules of thumb is you got to do at least maybe 10 customer interviews before you start writing a single line of code or you start building a product, because how do you know? Like you're assuming that what you are building is something that people want, but we know what an assumption is, right? An assumption makes an ass of you and me. So like we shouldn't just assume. And so this idea of actually learning and starting with learning and then focusing on the money part of it is actually core to starting a business or a career. And I I just think it's so overlooked. People don't want to take the time to learn 
They just want to get right to the like the sexy part of building a product. And you just overlook all of these things. And, and then you can learn some really hard lessons if you don't take that time to learn and understand the market. And we, we did this at Pushpay. We did it at Leader. We did it at Tome. We sat down and we just asked people, hey, what do you do in this situation? How do you do these things? What products do you use? Who's the competition? And it's surprise. sometimes the responses you get are really surprising. So it's just, just an encouragement for your listeners as, as they start thinking about things, focusing on learning first is really, really solid advice. Absolutely. And just, just a quick question. When you are going out and speaking to these customers, but you don't have the idea yet, but you're trying to scout it out, are, are these free conversations? Like, like it doesn't cost anything. We can do this right now and we can put put a couple hours in, get to have these conversations and it's free, you're telling me? Absolutely. And I mean, I would, I always buy, sometimes buy people a $50 Amazon gift card just to say, thank you for your time. But if you know people already and you can just call them up and say, Hey, can I buy you lunch? Then, you know, for the sake of 20, 30 bucks and an hour of your time, you're going to learn a lot. And just this, this kind of posture of like, I want to learn. I'm not an expert really sets you up well to take on the challenges when you really start having strong opinions of how you build things. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I, I think that that student mentor dynamic is so powerful because if you sit there and you're already open to them, like, hey, you're the guy who knows what's going on. I'm just here to learn. They're much more open and they don't view you as competition. They don't view anything. They're just eager to learn people, and they want to be around these people. People are so generous with their time. If you just like, hey, I really don't know anything about the space. Can you help me? Most people are just so generous. They're really willing to help. Um, but again, you just come at it from this posture of I'm a student, I'm humble, I'm willing to learn. And then people are very open to it. But if you turn up and you say, I got all these ideas, like just tell me that I'm right. I, people aren't, aren't so keen. <laughs> yeah, that's a much different approach. But I, I'm glad we're diving into it and having the distinctions there because you have to be humble. Like you said, you have to be receptive to their knowledge even if you don't agree with what's going on you're still just it's the learning phase and i don't exactly. know if this is discussed enough i feel like this isn't no i just i mean i tell even entry-level staff is like learn and then earn you know if you want to optimize for earning you're going to be in that same job for five years from now but if you optimize for learning your career path can take a wild turn it can go from sales to marketing to customer support and all the way you're learning, 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 and then so many opportunities open up for you. And I just, I see that with staff that I work with where when people turn up and they want to learn, they want to grow, then, you know, there's a lot of different roles I can put those people in. But when people turn up and say, I know exactly where I want to go in my career, it's like, well, like basically I might either have one role for you or you don't fit in the organization anymore. And so you've really put yourself into a corner that's very hard for an employer to to help invest in your career if you're so close-minded like that. Yeah. And I think I, I was actually having this conversation this morning with a group and we were talking about how success doesn't always look like the way you think it might look when you get there. So what I'm getting at with that is when we were going through high school and college, we we're like, Oh, 11th grade, 12th grade, 12th grade, this go to college, get the job, get a promotion, do that, do that, do that. Sometimes it's, 
We do some lateral moves. We go from marketing to customer service to sale, whatever it is. But I bring this up because Chris, who has built several very large businesses, is expressing to the audience and everyone listening that this is what we need to do to really learn those different avenues and directions so we can get a better whole picture of what an organization looks like and then you can find your place. Well, and here's a great um, uh, mental image to give your listeners to help them think about how to develop this. Um, I used to tell my team that you should be uh, what is called a T-shaped individual. So a T-shaped individual is someone who has, have you ever heard the old uh, Benjamin Franklin saying, uh, jack of all trades, master of none? Well, apparently uh, he said, you should be a jack of all trades and a master of one. Um, and so you should be really focusing on how do I go deeper in my specific kind of tactical skill set? In my case, it was accounting. But even while I was doing that, I was just super interested in business overall. And I read this quote by Peter Drucker, and he said, there's only two areas of investment in a business. Today, in today's world, it would be building a product and sales and marketing. He said, everything else is an expense. And so while I was learning accounting, I was like, how do we build products? Where do you go and learn about that? And how do you learn sales and marketing? Um, and in the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he talks about like the fact that sales and marketing is the number one skill that you can learn to advance your career. Um, and so I just started reading books on sales and marketing. I started reading every book on marketing, like Seth Godin, um, you name it. I was reading all these. And this is the idea of being T-shaped. I was an accountant. People saw me from the outside. They said, hey, that guy's an accountant. But I was focused on growing horizontally into these other skill areas that had nothing to do with accounting. And when you do that, you can now come and have conversations with people about topics that are outside of the accounting area. But if you get pigeonholed in this one functional area, like you, the career path for you becomes narrower and narrower. You know, if you're a specialist, over time, as you climb the ladder, you get lesser and lesser options that are available to you. But if you broaden your horizon by having different skills that you've even even just read about, read a book, read an article, read a, uh, listen to a podcast on sales and marketing, even if that's not your thing, then the options that are available to you are just exponentially more. And you can start to weigh in on those things and people say, hey, wait a second. I thought that Chris guy, he was just an accountant. You mean he actually knows more than that? Yeah. Like, hey, in my spare time, I read about these things. People are like, okay, well, next time there's a project that comes up for you to work on to advance your career, who do you think they're going to ask? They say, yeah. hey, Chris, can you join my team? Because you know some things that I think that we can benefit from. But if you just say, I'm going deep in one skill set, your career options actually become lesser and lesser. Huge, huge, because it's the frame that you place yourself in. And a lot of us tend to do it. That's why we talk about um, when someone goes, Chris, what do you do? And people answer, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm an accountant. We place ourselves in this frame. And when we put ourselves in the frame, it's very hard for our mindset to view other opportunities. So that's why I love the T-shape because it's constantly learning different areas. Obviously, you have your expertise. Everyone has to have something that they're specialized at. But to be open to new information is very powerful. So 
for you, it sounded like a lot of your mentorship and guidance came from different books. I, I read a lot. I mean, you can see, you know, this is half of the books I have behind me, but I have a bunch. And, you know, when we moved from New Zealand, I just, I bought over, you know, crates and crates of books. And if you, if you look at any successful person, and I mean any, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, you know, you name it, they are just voracious readers. Um, and just because you read, it doesn't make you a leader, but, you know, all leaders are readers. You have to read, like, as much as possible to really um, advance your career and develop yourself. And so uh, while I was um, growing Pushpay, I was, my, my commitment to myself was to read a book a week. Um, wow. Trying to spend an hour a day uh, reading. And it's hard because you have so many other things to do and commitments on your time. But the challenge is I just said to myself, if I don't stay, if my personal growth is not six months ahead of the business, one day the board of directors is going to call me up and say, Chris, it's been great, but you're no longer the right person for the role. And so I was just, you know, driven to make sure that I was always learning and developing and growing. I would assign books to my team to read. But the, the thing you don't want to do, especially if, if it's your company or you're part of it, the thing you don't want to do is be the single reason that your business is not growing fast enough. That was to me the thing I just, I never wanted to happen. And so by reading constantly, it meant I was always trying to stay just that little bit ahead of the business's growth. And the faster your business is growing, then the faster that you have to be developing as a leader or you'll get left behind and everyone will get together one day and say, hey, this has been really fun, but like actually you're not the right person for the next leg of the journey. And then you're out and it, it can be really frustrating. Yeah, and this is coming from the CEO of the cut, like, I don't want to under, like, under, understate what just, what Chris just said here. He was talking about how he was scared of losing his role because, but it was the company he built. And could you imagine that commitment of constantly learning and growing and having a standard to hold yourself against? And the reason that's so important is because a lot of us just go through life very lethargically not intentionally, not trying to make the most of each moment that we have. So Chris, I, I applaud you for that. And can we dive into the startup push pay? How, how did that go for you? I know you had a couple startups before that and it was a journey you've been on. Um, but yeah, let's just dive into that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, uh, so while I was in a, an accountant, I had a bunch of different startups on the side uh, and and learned a lot, you know, all in different industries, in packaging, in the credit card space, in um, the music business, and uh, we did we were doing website hosted websites like um, uh, like Wix or something, you know, way back in two thousand two. So we we had a lot of different things, none of them that really quite took off. Um, and so Wait. by the time I got to one sec. Sorry. You're telling me that you had a full-time job and then you were doing these startups on the side? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean... I look, because there's there's a lot of people that need to feel the need to make the jump. And then there's some people who are like, I got to test the water. I got to try... How many years were you working before you made the jump? Um, well, I, I, I quit my job and chased some startups and, um, honestly it didn't work out very well. You know, you find yourself in credit card debt, 
And, you know, going backwards and just one of the learnings uh, for me personally was that I, you know, I think there's a lot of advice to go follow your passion and, and take the jump. And, and I think, you know, for some people, it's the right thing to do. But I think for me, I didn't have enough savings. I didn't have the idea. I didn't, I wasn't earning any money and I was just working 80, 90, 100 hours a week and earning not much. And when you have to fund the company yourself, I wasn't funded by an investor. I just personally ended up going backwards while trying to build the organization at the same time. And so when it came around to 2011 and Elliot uh, had the idea for PushPay and, and we kind of decided to partner up, uh, I was I built my accounting firm to be a certain size where I was able to take a day a week. And I said, I have a, you know, a, a nine to five job effectively. And so what I'm going to do is I, I, I can't do my startup while I'm sitting in an accounting office. I actually have to drive across town and get a completely different office to change my mindset so that when I walk into this office, I'm actually thinking about push bay. And I'm, I have a different cell phone. I just leave the CPA, the accounting stuff behind. I walk into this office. I'm here to do push pay. And I had this friend. He had this gym. He had this like office space that was kind of barely finished. And so I would go over there and, uh, and start making calls and working on stuff. And every day at about four o'clock, the Zumba class would start. You're like, I'm trying to get work done. But, you know, that was the cost of cheap office space. But for me, I had negotiated this and I was able to do that with my friends. And so I was able to keep my job, pay the bills. I was married at this time, but I was also giving a day a week to the to push pay before I jumped in full time and said, right, like, and I was working nights and weekends on push pay. Don't, don't get me wrong. It wasn't just a day a week, but I just said, if I don't spend a day a week on this, it will never move forwards fast enough to get to the point where I can quit my job. Yeah. And there are ways that you have to make it happen and work together and give different ideas. Was Elliot all in at this point or he was doing a similar situation? He, he was fortunate. He had a sales role and he was actually able to uh, do his sales role at night mostly. And he was so good at sales that he basically hit his quota. Uh, he went to his boss and he said, Hey, look, if I hit my quota, can I work half the time? And his boss said, sure. As long as you hit your number, but when you don't hit your number, by the way, you got to come back to 40 hours a week. And so he had this deal where he could basically hit his number, work in half time because he was that good and spend the rest of the time on push pay. So we both kind of eased into it after some tough learnings of doing it the other way. Um, and then, you know, one day became two and two days became three. And then one of the things today I know it's popular is just like go out and raise money from external people. But we just said to ourselves, I don't feel like we can have integrity and take money from outside funding people if we haven't put our own money on the line. So we we both took our life savings, it was about 30000 each, and put it into the company. And that wasn't for our salaries, that was just to pay the bills. And, you know, that was kind of enough to get things going. So we were, I borrowed it on my mortgage, he had saved his up to buy a house, and we both put it in, into PushPay and, and that was, you know, how we got started. Incredible. And wh what did your wife think at the time? What, what were your, because <laughs> I, uh, I know significant other is always a factor. And you're just got to be like, it's going to work. Don't worry. It's fine. <laughs> we're going. She wasn't crazy about it, but I mean, she had, she was just kind of like, oh, you know, Chris is starting another company. This one's going to fail too, just like the other ones. <laughs> um, 
And I had kind of progressively invested bigger amounts of money into startups. The one before that was, uh, you know, $15,000 or so. The one before that was, you know, 10000 So it's like it started to add up. And, you know, when you're, when you're young, newly married, I mean, you know, that's a lot of money. Um, and I had worked just crazy hard to, to earn the money. So it, it came with some real sacrifice. And I think, um, you know, if you're thinking about doing, whether it's a startup or getting into something, you know, sacrifice and, and putting something at risk is just, is a really key part of it. In the early days at Pushbay, I think we had about two thirds of our staff that had either moved countries or states to come and be part of the company. And oh, wow. you know what happened? Those people were always, almost always incredible employees because they had something on the line. It wasn't just a job to them. It was something more than that. Um, and, you know, it just, they were still getting paid. They didn't have to put their life savings on the line, but still moving away from family and friends, it comes at a cost. Yeah. You got to understand everyone's perspective at that point. So you and Elliot, you put the money in and w- what are the next steps? What happens next? How do we get to the fundraising to go in public and all, all of that stuff in between. Did you build out the product and then go to customers and start to make money organically? Like how'd that work? Yeah. I mean, as you can tell, you know, $60,000 doesn't go very far. It's just, we burned through that really fast and building the original prototype and getting it out the door. And so we, we, we ended up raising a little bit of money to uh, kind of, scale up the sales team and we got customers in New Zealand using the product and the results that came back were amazing. I mean, they saw, you know, mostly with churches, we saw just incredible increases in their giving, you know, five, 10, 15% a year increases wow. in their giving. Um, and what happened was people was, you know, the product basically was what if you could, you know, give in church as easy as buying a song on iTunes because iTunes had made it so easy to click and buy a song in 10 seconds and yet people in church wanted to give hundreds of dollars and they had to write a check or they had to do it online. It was just not a convenient experience. So Pushpay was really the first mobile giving app that existed for churches in America. And so when we, when we started having people use this, you know, especially younger people in their twenties and thirties who didn't always even have checkbooks, they found it so convenient and the results started to speak for themselves so we kind of knew we were onto something early, but the question was in how do you get it out to people so that, you know, a lot of people can hear about this. And Elliot was just incredible at sales, cold calling people. We, um, when we started working with churches in the States, uh, speaking this idea of sacrifice, we would have sales reps turn up to New Zealand at four in the morning because they were calling America, which was, you know, nine yeah. Pacific time or, you know, sometime you know, midday already on the East coast. And so we would have five or six guys, you know, all in their twenties turning up and just cold calling churches in America. Um, I don't know how we got them to do that, but they, they did. And uh, some of those guys went on to be directors, managers, VPs. One of those guys, our first ever hire, Matt's now the CEO of leader. And so, you know, that idea of sacrifice and hard work really, really paid off. And we started to see, you know, a few customers signing up. And what gave you the the confidence and perspective that, hey, we're not just a New Zealand company anymore? Because that that jump and you living in New Zealand the whole time, like that is a global perspective. That's a big, big difference. Or was the U.S. always on the horizon? 
Well, part of the problem was New Zealand doesn't have a lot of churches, so we ran out of the market pretty quickly. And we said, well, we've already invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into the product. Where's got a lot of churches? Oh, well, there's 300,000 churches in America. Why don't, wow. we, why don't we go there? And, um, you know, as of a few years ago, something like $120 billion each year is donated to churches. So this is not like just a small rinky-dink thing where you're saying, man, we're really going after the small, you know, TAM, like this was huge. And yet no one was focusing on this. And we could never understand why uh, VCs and founders and all these other, why is no one focusing on this? This is huge. Um, and so we turned up and 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 st- people started using our app and, and started getting similar results to New Zealand, in some cases a lot better. Um, and, and it started, you know, the, the flywheel started to turn slowly, slowly, but we started just seeing amazing results and really happy customers. And what gave you, because I know a couple of the other startups you did in the past, what what made it church focused? Is it the market or what, what, what allowed that? What made you guys see that as an opportunity? Well, I mean, originally we were thinking much broader than that, but what happened when we saw the opportunity in, with, with churches the, the, and the fact that no one else was really doing this, it kind of almost became self-evident that this is what we should do. Um, and just the feedback from our customers that were really happy and seeing positive results was like, yeah, we should, and Elliot, Elliot's, a, you know, amazing, got an amazing ability to focus. Um, and he kept saying, look, you know, we should just go all in on churches. And so that's what we did after kind of a couple of years of, you know, after starting the company, we said, yes, like this is what we should do. The results are there. We just have to figure out how to scale the company. Yeah. And through these years of growth and hyper growth, what, what were some of the difficulties you guys faced and how did you overcome them? Yeah. So I think we turned up in the States in about 2013 and then uh, we eventually relocated to Seattle in 2014. And then, you know, things just went bananas and, and, you 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 took, did you take everyone from New Zealand and move them to Seattle or just you guys moved there or how how that worked? All the engineering staff um, and some of the finance staff were in New Zealand uh, just because we already had some really great people there. We wanted to keep growing that, but then everything else customer facing was in Seattle and, you know, from uh, 20, uh, mid 2014 onwards, we went from about 1 million to 10 million of revenue in about 10 months. Um, and the, wow. you know, the growth of the company just, just took off. Uh, and obviously we went public, you know, super early, um, in the, in the cycle. And, uh, and, you know, we raised $9 million in our public round, which is obviously small for a U.S. round, but back in those days, yeah. uh, that was, it was a lot of money. And, you know, I remember sitting with people, and it was their personal money. It wasn't some a fund who was investing. It was like mums and dads and farmers yeah. and people who had earned this money themselves. And so this was a big deal to them. And so the fact that I'd sat with them and seen the fact that this was their money, you know, it take comes with a lot of pressure then to deliver. And so we we you know just started learning the SaaS playbook and how to scale an organization. And it was just, you know, running around like crazy trying to grow this organization. Um, And so some of the things, you know, that I think stick out to me, number one is just people. Every single thing in business comes down to people. Um, And it's the way I think about it now, too, is you don't really have a growth problem. You have a people problem. It's not that you actually don't know how to grow the company. 
is that you don't have someone on your team that knows how to grow the company. Uh, and if you found the right person, then you would be able to scale and grow faster. And that comes with a lot of pressure because like I was saying, I was trying to constantly focus on being the right person, but also put a lot of pressure on my team to say, are you the right person? Do you have the answers? Are you learning and leveling up? Or, you know, are you eventually just going to say, hey, I was the person who was here from a million to 10 million, but I'm not a $30 million a year revenue VP. And in some cases, it's just people have natural skills that fit to one or other of those stages. Very few people scale the whole way. Um, and one of my board members one time, he said to me, you know, how many people do you think are at Facebook that were there on day one? I was like, I don't know. I've never really thought about that. He said, one person, only Zuck. Everyone else cycles out eventually, right? Some people are great from zero to 1 million, some 10 to 50, some 50 to 100, you know, but you have to realize not everyone is there. It's a relay race. You know, it's not, not everyone is going to make it forever. And when you realize that, it's like, okay, I've got a VP in a specific role who's not working out. That's okay. Maybe they've been here for two, three, four years and they've run their race and it's time for them to pass the baton to the next person. But in the early days, I struggled so much because I'm like, this person's been so loyal. They moved states, yeah. they did this. But it's like, you have to really sit down and evaluate that and say, can this person get us to the next stage? And if the answer is, I don't know, you really have to start thinking about that because if you had someone better in the role, would the growth of the company accelerate? Absolutely. You know, so it always comes down to a people problem is, is really, I think, the biggest learning. Yeah, I think that's a, a huge distinction that you brought up there, that as the growth goes on, people are at different points. Uh, and this was explained to me the first time by uh, one of my mentors, this guy, Howard. And he he did building uh, like in the beginning of his career. And he's like, yeah, we would build 10 houses uh, a year. And then we build 100 houses a year. But he's like, I can't have the contractor because the contractor can't handle more than five houses. So now I got 10 contractors trying to handle these. And you just realize that there's these limitations, not on you, not on the, there's limitations that people place on themselves. And that's just sometimes what happens. And that ability to, is this a good fit for you? Is this a good fit for us? I think that's really powerful that you brought that up because a lot of people are used to, we've been here forever. It's going to stay the same in it as it's always been. I mean, you brought up Facebook. Facebook is talking about changing their name as they want to be all in on the metaverse. Like, what does that even mean? Exactly. Well, one of the things I had to learn the hard way was that originally I was scared of conflict. And so I didn't want to really deal with sometimes when people were underperforming. So well, I'm going to do them a favor. I'm not really going to tell them that they're underperforming. But then eventually someone said to me, Chris, if there's a problem on your team and you don't address it, then you're the problem. And I was like, okay, I got to go talk to that person because I don't want to be the problem. So, you know, with it, it's the same whether it's a marriage, in a nonprofit, in a board setting, in a company. If there's a problem and you don't want to address it, then you're going to become the problem. And so it helped me reframe it from, you know, running away from the conflict to actually, I need to do this person you know, the right thing and actually have this conversation with them and give them feedback that maybe they don't want to hear. 
Otherwise, I'm going to find myself out of a role eventually too. And, and I think it's just a challenge for all of us that don't like conflict. We've got to get over it and actually have those conversations. And it is exponentially easier to do those confronts or care fronts, however you want to say it, um, to do these confronts in earlier on. Because once it piles up, then people erupt and you don't want to be at that place of you're fired. And when someone says that, it's like, what did I do wrong? How did that work? I don't understand. You have to have these confronts along the way so that people understand. And it's a measuring and monitoring of where they're at at that point. And if they're going to continue on the same trajectory that you believe that they're going to be on. So I think that's huge. A hundred percent. And so one of the things I would do is, you know, rather than just go so thin on different topics, like I would pick a topic and go deep for a year. So in those early days, I said, I have to learn payments. Everything there is to learn about payments. I didn't read any books that were not about payments because I need to be the person in the organization who can answer questions, sit in front of investors. I can tell you the difference between a front end and a back end gateway and how the money moves from visa to the issuing to the you know processing bank, the whole thing, right? Like I've got to be able to learn that. And then it's, it's crazy, but like how do you run a payments company and not do that? And so one of our core values at Leader is, you know, we believe that leaders should have a blue collar DNA. And it's the idea of rolling up your sleeves and getting down into the work. And how, you know, one of the things I say to my team is if it breaks and you don't know how to fix it, we've got a really big problem. And so if the payment stuff breaks and I didn't know how it worked, then I would be the one who would look like a turkey in front of my investors. And I, I would have to say, I lost your money to those farmers and the mums and dads that I had met with and took their money. So I don't want that. And then after that, it was software as a service. You know, I wanted to learn custom acquisition metrics, you know, CAC, LTV, you know, churn, all of those good things. And like, how does all that work? Because ultimately businesses today are valued very differently than old school businesses were 20 years ago. So how do we as a business monitor whether we're winning or not? And you have to have a set of uh, metrics to measure that. And then after that, it was about leadership. I'm like, oh, there's like 150 people here. How do you lead 150 people? Like there's not a manual that they give you and say, congratulations, your company's got 150 people. Here's how to now you know, take it to the next level. So I just started reading everything from you know Jack Walsh to you know John Maxwell, you name it, I would read all the books. And to your point about conflict, John Maxwell had this excellent example. He said, just imagine on your team, you have a lady called Jenny on the accounting team and Jenny's not doing a good job and everyone on the team actually knows. They're like, yeah, Jenny's not very good at her job. And so one day uh, the company's not meeting its budget and so we need to do layoffs and your boss comes to you and says, okay, you've got to lay off 10% of your team. You say, hey, easy, Jenny's the one who's got to go. You sit down with Jenny and you say, Jenny, sorry, you're being let go. And Jenny says, well, why am I the one being let go? You say, well, Jenny, like everyone knows, like, you're not very good and you know you're the least least performer on this team it's like well, what do you mean like i didn't know that you say well, what do you mean like everyone knows jenny that you're the one who's not performing well she's well, no one's ever told me and so part of what we learned was that you know to be candid is to be kind you don't want to be cruel but you have to give people candid feedback because in the event of that situation when you sit down with that person across the table if they're surprised, then you failed as a leader. And so my number one rule of management is no surprises. 
because it's something that every single person can control. And that applies whether that's communication up or down the organization chart. But for that employee, they should know exactly where they're at on their performance. Otherwise, you're not doing a good job as the manager and the leader of giving that person feedback. So it's just super important to be able to have those conversations. And that reframed again, my whole view of like, okay, I've got to get over myself and not be afraid of confrontation because then I'm going to let down someone on my team. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So as you were taking push pay and it's growing faster and faster, why did you guys go public with New Zealand and what was the thought process there? And then how was that public process? Yeah. I mean, Originally, we just had a lot of um, great investors from New Zealand who wanted to invest into us. There was another company called Zero that had you know, gone public a few years before, been a home run. And so I think there was an appetite to do that. But over time, as we did successive fundraising rounds, we talked to US VCs. And it was just shocking to me how none of them really had any interest in the US faith sector. They were just like, isn't that shrinking? You know, uh, we're not interested in investing in that space. You know, do people still go to church? We would just hear these kind of things. I'll say, well, look, there's $114 billion, $120 billion a year being given to churches. Like, I didn't come up with that number. Like, that's, you know, objective numbers that you can go look at. And they would just be like, well, we're just really not interested in the space. Um, and I'm sure over time, I, I pitched over 100 investors in the States, including VCs and public market investors, and just none of them really uh, understood the size of the opportunity in the in the faith sector. And so we primarily raised all our money from New Zealand and Australian uh, investors. And, you know, obviously they, they did incredibly well. Um, but it was just shocking to me how few of them saw this opportunity um, and, and saw, you know, the size of the company that we could have built. Yeah, absolutely. So you go public in New Zealand. And once you go public, how did that experience change for you? As we understand now, now you're reporting to people. It's a little bit different. How, how is that for you? It's a lot of work, a lot of work. And um, I'm just very fortunate that we had an amazing board of directors, you know, people who had done this before, um, you know, from our investors to Peter and Bruce and, and Graham, you know, people who, had been there and done it. And they were just very patient and gracious with me because I had never done it. But I was young and ambitious, but I I had zero experience on this side of things. Um, and so I, I, I think the advice to people is, you know, go and build a team of people who's way smarter than you. And, uh, you know, the, the board that we put together was just incredible. And they, you know, were very kind and, and patient when I was trying to learn the ropes of how to run a public company. Um, and I, I just think there's a huge lesson there of surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. If you look around your friend group or your mentor group and you're the smartest person, you're in trouble because you're going to average out to be, you know, what the people around you are. And, you know, don't, don't cut your friends because they're not, you know, rich or smart or anything, but like you've got to have one or two people around you who's, who you're just like, man, I, I don't know why they're friends with me, but, as long as they'll keep having coffee with me, I'm going to keep showing up and asking questions because that's how you learn and get better is by seeing that other people have done it and that you can do it too. Because, you know, I love it reading biographies because you read about these people, Abraham Lincoln, and 
dude was a messed up. He had some problems, you know? And it's like, there's hope and encouragement for us when we realize that people who are the greats in history, they had as many problems as you, you and I did. And, and if they and, can do it, we can do it too. And Chris, I want to bring up a massive, massive point that you just, uh, you kind of touched on, but you didn't say it. It was that we need to have our friends and we need to know who it is that we're reaching out to or who around us is actually in the correct direction. But the other part that you added on to that was reading books. The way I view it is right now I'm reading um, Jay Shetty's book. It's how to live like a monk or something like that. And the way I view it is when I read it, I'm speaking with Jay Shetty. I'm not saying Jay Shetty's better or worse. I'm just saying that when we do these activities and we read from these people and we read these biographies of some of the incredible individuals brought up, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, who, uh, Michael Dell, whoever it is, it's like we're having a conversation with them and that can become our peer group in a very unique way. So it doesn't always have to be we speak with them, but it could be the books on your shelves. It could be the podcast you listen to. We could be those people. Chris, you're one of those people for me. You know what I mean? It can be anyone you communicate with. And I, and I just wanted to bring that point up that it's not let's go find new friends. Let's go reset all our friendships. It's where do you learn from? Who are you gaining that insight from? And who are you spending that time from? 100%. My mother told me this, this saying early. She said, you're a result today of the people you hung out with, the books you read, and the podcast you listened to yesterday. And I was like, that's it. That's exactly right. If you want to change, change one of these three things. Listen to podcasts like Jordan's, you know, hang out with better people, grab a coffee and ask people. I, I cannot tell you how many times I would find people that were way out of my league and I would just write to them um, and, and just ask them if they would meet with me. There's an um, amazing book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And, you know, the book says the number one thing that people are interested in is themselves. And so you just write to them and you say, hey, you've had this incredible career. You've had incredible success. Can I buy you lunch any time of the day or week? Wherever you want to meet, I will be there if I can have an hour of your time. And you should just find a bunch of people and send these out and be extremely meaningful about it and intentional about it. And people are very happy to share their time with people. And so I would meet with people and they would... I would show up, I would always have, I'd show that I had done the research and I would have a list of questions and I would go through them and I would say, Hey, you know, here's the history of your firm. You know, tell me about, you know, this thing here. And what do you think happens when you honor someone's time, you take notes and at the end of, you don't talk about yourself. I'm not pitching you something. I'm here to learn. And at the end of the hour, I said, thank you so much for your time. I got job offers from people. I didn't even, they didn't even know my history and background. People gave me job offers because I was, I showed up, I was prepared, I was interested, I had done my homework. And they're like, you know, do you want to come back again? You want to hang out? I'm like, absolutely. I've earned the right to come back a second time because I've done the work that no one else is doing. And it's not rocket science. You don't need any special skills to do that. All you've got to do is have a little bit of tenacity and do a bit of preparation. And you're going to stand out from 99.9% of the people out there. So it's amazing how many people are within your reach if you just 
ask and you're just candid and you're like, I'm just a young kid. I'm trying to figure some things out. I'm trying to learn. Would you help me? People are very, very open to helping people. Yeah, I love that. When when were you doing that? Or do you still do that? I started, I started, <laughs> I started when I was at the IRS. I would reach out to people and I would just go and have coffee and breakfast with them. Um, and look, you know, you can't get to Warren Buffett or Bill Gates. I mean, you know, those people are just out of reach, but find someone in your community who's one or two steps beyond where you are and talk to those people. And right. they're very Chris, generous with their time. Chris, you're going to love this. That is exactly what happened when COVID hit. I thought about that concept and I utilized the podcast. And we're having these conversations today. And it, if you think about the exact steps we took and the exact steps that you described, it's as simple as, hey, come speak to my audience. Speak to my people. And then the conversation's captured too. Yes. So you can reference back to that. Exactly. And just just like this, you know, you did the work and you've done the, the homework. It's like, it, you'd be shocked at how many people ask for your time and then they don't do the homework, you know? Hey, tell me about pushback. Which country was it started in? You're like, <sighs> you, could have, you could have Googled for two minutes and found that out. Like it doesn't even take a lot, you know? And it's just, it's how you elevate yourself from the other 99.9%. So uh, those people are within reach. They want to help you. And, you know, that's how you change, you know, your life is by getting in contact with them and, and starting to ask them questions and learn how they did it. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And Chris, so with you, you leave Pushpay because of the public. You, you were more with the customers, right? Uh, I was listening to another podcast and that's there. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, after you know almost ten years of leading the organization, I was a little tired, and uh, I I like startups. I love the startup culture and the startup environment, and the public uh, environment wasn't you know utilizing my strengths the best. I love traveling out to meet with people and and hear about their problems and try and build software. And as a CEO of a four hundred something person company, you know you don't get to choose your calendar as much as you would like, and so. I started talking with the board and said, "Hey, I'm I'm keen to explore the next chapter." And and they, you know, were very gracious about it. And it was a great process. You know, it's amazing again when you just treat people with respect. And hey, I'm willing to stick this out for as long as you know we need to to make this a great transition for everyone. Um, everyone was just was super supportive about it. So yeah, I left in May of 19, and and I I said, you know, what I really want to do is help other people start startups. And so um, the first company that we worked on was a company called Leader, which is a lot of what we've talked about today. How do you help develop and grow leaders at every level of your organization? And that does it primarily through one-to-one -one software. And so we, we started that in 2019. And today it's got 55 or so staff and has got 400-something customers. So it's just been doing incredible. And then uh, just a few months ago started another company called Tome, uh, which is a, a B2C uh, uh, company and product. Yeah. So tell us a little bit. Well, first of all, who replaced you as CEO? Because I think this is really impressive. Who was it? It was the chairman, Bruce, who actually had been an advisor to the company from uh, before the product was even built. So uh, Bruce was, you know, a, far more experienced CEO. 
and he he did a great job and then handed it off to Molly who uh, was the uh, the very uh, she started in in Push Bay as a CSM and then led a CSM team and then got promoted to chief customer officer um, and so now she's the CEO uh, and she grew and developed through that uh, through that the whole organization and then Matt who's the CEO of Leader is actually the first sales rep that we hired way back in New Zealand above that gym <laughs> making cold calls at four in the morning. He grew. He was a VP of sales at 28, I think, leading 120 people, um, and now he's a CEO. And so, I just, you know, I love helping develop and grow people, you know, from entry level through to being CEOs. Um, and again, there's nothing special, you know. It's just hard work and continuing to learn and develop. And and these people are now, you know, CEOs. But Troy, who's the CEO of Tome. Uh, actually started as our first customer success manager at Pushbay. So, and, yeah, I was just going to say all all of these stories are not to say that um, that you're not going to make it. It's that if you're loyal and you're continuing to work and continuing to grow, Chris is a perfect leader in that example. That he he provides the opportunity. He doesn't hold you down. And if you find yourself being held, it might not be the right place for you. Because 100%. You, you just open up other opportunities. You, you have to. I think today you can't afford to hold people down. The, the, the labor market is such that if you are in that role, in that position, you can get five other jobs tomorrow. And so yeah. talent is going to go to the place that it's being developed, invested in, and, and nurtured. And so as an employer, you have to do that. You have to develop your people give them new opportunities. And, and I think people want that. So I think in a, in a lot of ways, it's a really positive change. Absolutely. So let's dive into Tome a little bit. I know it's fairly new off the presses. It's, uh, tell us about it. It's a really interesting app. Absolutely. So I think the first thing that's interesting is, you know, when I saw this opportunity that no one in, in the US is really laser focused on the faith market, I said, you know, there's an opportunity here to build multiple uh, generational companies. And the thing that just surprised me was that after Pushpay, you know, it's a $2 billion company. It's, you know, coming up on 200 million a year of revenue. Say, like, what am I missing? Why is no one else looking for the second, third, fourth, fifth Pushpay? If there's 300,000 churches, you think that there could be multiple companies that serve this vertical. And Peter Thiel talks a lot about this in his book, that the goal is to go and play where there's not a lot of competition. So Leader is primarily providing HR and one-to-one software to churches and other organizations too. But it's why we've been able to grow so fast is because no one else is serving that space. And so we looked around and I started saying, why is no one really providing incredible world-class software that helps people engage with the Bible? And when you look at things like um, movies, you know, the Prince of Egypt that DreamWorks made back in, I think it was 98 or something like that, um, or in the early 2000s, the fastest growing segment of the music market back when CDs were a thing was gospel and Christian music. So this, you know, historical uh, comparatives that we can look at and say, this segment is ginormous from an investment perspective. Uh, but when you bring that together with your heart and your passion 
and you start to say, I'm super passionate about serving this market, I think that's when something really, really special happens. And so Tome was really based on this idea of a problem that exists in the world. You know, people are interested in the Bible, uh, whether you go to church or not, you're interested. You're like, hey, what does this have to say about, you know, marriage or conflict or identity or suicide? And how do I dive into that and explore that? And the idea we came up with was what if we could get not just me sitting in a studio talking to people, but actually world-class communicators who had been through this before to share their story with people. And so this has been going incredibly well. Um, we're in the middle of a, a big launch at the moment and our, our new season starts on November the 8th. And we have a mob boss, for example, and he you know, was got thrown in the paddy wagon, thrown in a sol- solitary confinement and then turned his life around, you know, after that and sharing his story uh, of how to go for him. We call it pain to power, you know, or Miss America or three-time Super Bowl winning Dallas Cowboy, uh, Darren Woodson. You know, it's just these incredible people telling their stories and how uh, this this book from thousands of years ago helped them along the way. Yeah, and uh, to practice this, the first time I talked to Chris, I was looking at the tome and – Basically what happens is if you go on the Tome website, they have this video. It's 17 minutes long. It's incredibly done. And I was like, I'm really kind of enjoying this. I, I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> and the first time I talked to Chris, and he, because I also want to preface that I'm Jewish too. So I haven't looked into the bot. Like I know some of it. I know some of the stuff, but I'm just not that. It's just, we're different faith. But Chris is like, I want it to be so good that it doesn't matter. And that is the content that we're looking for because you guys are putting in a lot of money to these videos. These are not cheaply done. This Absolutely. is really high class. Yeah, we've been through four sets. I mean, look, one of the things that we, we said at Push Bay was, you know, we wanted the product to be so good that if it was for any other market than the faith market, that they would say, this is world-class. And we won all kinds of awards and Stevie Awards and different things because of that. And, and I think the same is true here is no matter what you're doing, you have to ask yourself this question, is what I'm doing excellent? Is it solving a problem for someone out there? And so when we started this, we said, you know, no one is doing this with excellence. This market is massively underserviced. How do we take truly world-class filmography, set design, you know, incredible world-class people and bring this to life? And obviously we'll put a ton of money behind it, but it, it starts with this culture of excellence that even you can build, you know, when um, you're starting something small. And I think sometimes we just get, we kind of get discouraged because we see where we want to get to and we say, man, that's so far away. But like, let me encourage you and your listeners, you know, one of the things I, I learned through observing startups was Um, Steve Jobs was like well-known as this kind of maniacal perfectionist. He just like relentlessly asked people to be, you know, amazing and and make everything perfect. But as a result, his products would take years to build and cost way too much money. And so when he came back to Apple, he relearned actually how to build uh, products. And so when um, they started thinking about doing the iPod, the first product that they you know, launched after he started to get back into the saddle, they they launched the iPod, I think it was 11 months from start to finish. And 
it was in some ways it was horrible had a lot of problems <laughs> with it but it solved a problem for a whole entire set of the market and then they relentlessly iterated that product 19 iterations before it finally got sunsetted forever and so this is the way now that we have to build products and companies if you find a problem that needs to be solved then you start there and then you relentlessly focus on making your product and service better and better and better and better like apple did 19 times and that's that's what tom is tom is starting today with a problem that exists and we're going to continue to make it better for more videos and and continue to level up and you know that makes something that seems out of reach you know very actually achievable because we don't have to be perfect on day one. We just have to get started. Yeah. And it's uh, the, the journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. It, it's you got to get started. You got to get it going. And this was really interesting to me because I was telling Chris before we started that I feel I watched a tone video again. I watched a tone video the first time I met with Chris. I watched it the second time. Second time it kind of landed with me because I understood what was happening it became a place where you can reference the Bible. You can reference your spirituality because with Edwards consulting, we have five pillars. It's mental health, physical health, community service, philanthropy, relationships, and spirituality. And most of the time with spirituality, people go, well, I don't know if I have time to go to church on Sundays. I'm sitting there and I'm like, it's a pretty good point. Solid point. Then I realized that tome is that element of spirituality that you can touch on at the tips of your fingers at a very high class level and it takes five minutes. So, and you were explaining it as the Peloton to their, something like that, right? Absolutely. During the pandemic, I think we started to see that, uh, well, before the pandemic, we would just outsource things to people. We would say, you know, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go to a class. And one of the things that changed and is starting to change in our culture is now you know, I'm going to take control of my own health and I'm going to go get on the bike and do a Peloton ride. And so I think we're seeing the same thing happen in the faith space where it's like, I would, I can outsource my religion to the church. Not people wouldn't say it like that, but it's like, I don't have to worry about it because I just turn up on a Sunday. And now I think people are starting to say, I couldn't go to church for a year when things were locked down. So I need to start taking responsibility for my own spirituality and exploring what does that mean to me and how do I practice that every single day? Because I don't need to go somewhere to actually take control and start to read my Bible and do my own things. It's like, I don't have to go to the gym anymore because Peloton's in the house already. And I think you're going to see this across multiple different avenues where people are starting to take control back and say, I need to own my own spirituality, my own, you know, uh, physical health. And I'm going to do that perhaps in the, in the quietness of my own home. And, you know, I think churches are struggling. I mean, something like 40% of people have not come back after COVID uh, because they're saying, you know, Hey, I, I'm going to, you know, I've got out of the habit of it, or I'm going to just try and find a different way to do it. Um, And I think it's just an interesting trend to observe that's happening across the board. Absolutely. So Chris, I know we could go for another three hours. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Um, where can people find Tome? 
And where can people find you? Yeah, come and check out Tome at Tome app, T-O-M-E, app.com. And I would love to hear your feedback. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter primarily. You can hit me up, Chris Heslip on Twitter or chrisheslip.com. Uh, I publish some some different stuff there from time to time. And look, I'm just passionate about helping people start uh, companies and, and grow into their full potential. So if I can help you in any way, please don't hesitate to reach out and uh, more than happy to, to point you in the right direction. Absolutely. I will put all that in the show notes. And what is one piece of advice that someone could take away today to apply to their life that will allow them to get one step closer to that fulfillment, whatever that is. Change the people that are around you. If you're frustrated and you're stuck, you need to go find one, maybe just one other person who can believe in you, mentor you, tell you that it is possible for you to get to where you want to get to. Um, And it's, it's just the number one thing that determines your outcomes and your happiness is the people that you associate with. Amazing. I appreciate you and I appreciate this time together. This has been fun. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, we'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, we'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in.